Welcome, everybody. I'm so glad that you're here and uh, online with us. We're glad that you've joined us. Um, it has been said that I am kind of a transparent preacher. Like, in other words, I talk about my own life, and you kind of get to know me as I preach. And uh, you, if you've been here at the church for any length of time, you know that I came to a crisis when I was 14 years old where I was struggling with who I was and what, what, what was valuable in my life, and is my life even worth continuing to live? And, uh, and at 14 years old, God changed my life. But I'm going to take you back two years prior to that and, uh, and tell you a little bit of what happened when I was in junior high. Um, I was the kid that got caught for stuff. Uh, in other words, if there was a whole lot of people doing something, I was the one that got the letter home, and I was the one that got the call home. Uh, there were three experiences that stood out significantly in my uh, junior high career. Uh, one was in art class, they had us, and I don't know if you guys ever did this, they had us try to make uh, artistic structures out of wire, and we would tie wire up and, and, and make horses and people and all this kind of thing with wire, and we had wire cutters and this wire that, that, uh, that was given to each kid. Uh, some of us in the back uh, would cut them into smaller pieces, wrap them around our pencil in a cone shape, and fling them across the room. As those projectiles were really good, because it could hurt somebody. I mean, it could really like, get them in the back. It felt like, it felt like a little bit of a snap, not hurt them bad. Well, one girl got uh, one that came close to her eye, and that went down to the principal's office, and in the next class, they lined us all up outside. Who did it? Everyone pointed at me. <laughs> now, there was a lot more people than me, but my parents got a letter home with on, taped onto it one of these little cone things. I've never done it since, but I'm not saying it's not a very cool thing to do. But. <laughs> in science class later that year, uh, we had Bunsen burners at the time. We didn't have the uh, flames that came out of a pipe. We had Bunsen burners and beakers and test tubes. And our science, it was, science was a cool class. Um, when the teacher left the class, I got into a goggles fight with people. And as I threw my goggle across at somebody else, it hit the whole rack of test tubes and knocked it off, and all the test tubes were broken. My parents got a letter, and a bill, by the way. <laughs> and then as you leave the, uh, the cafeteria, there was, and other kids were doing this way more than me. I did it once and got caught. <laughs> but you'd grab the header on the door and kick your feet up, and you could kick the ceiling tiles out. So we would grab it, and I was like fourth in line, and I, right when I started, around comes a teacher, you know, grabbed by the scruff of the neck, and off the, I don't know, kids, if you know this, but back in my day, you could be grabbed by the scruff of the neck and dragged to the principal. So there was a moment where my mom got the call. When I first went to the principal's office, it was actually the vice principal's office where I spent my time, he would open up the dictionary and have me copy pages up from the dictionary. I just had to write until my hand was tired. That was my punishment, and he thought that that would get my attention. Uh, when that didn't work, uh, my mom got a call. And as I was waiting in the waiting room, my mom is now coming to school. Now, my mom is as sweet a woman as you could ever meet. Just kind and gentle and didn't ever want to hurt me, and um, I had disappointed her. I disappointed her. And in turn, I disappointed myself. 
And as I'm sitting there, the emotions I was feeling was shame, fear, blame. I'm blaming myself. What's wrong with me? It's the beginning of God working in me to bring a change. As we look at Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9, we are in the middle of an of a experience that Israel's going to go through for 200 years of shame, of disappointment, of getting caught, of finding out that they have failed and having to answer for it. Now, I've just described my story, and I admit that if Jeannie were to come up and tell her story, it would be very different. She never got a call to the principal's office. She never was the person who got caught because she wouldn't do it. She would have looked at somebody grabbing on the frame and, you know, to me it felt like a really smart thing to do. Get in line, grab on the frame, and kick the ceiling tiles. There are some of you that never experienced this in the way that I did. But the good thing that I experienced was uh, to write at a very young age, know that before God, I wasn't sufficient. That there was something missing. And that, for me, became a catalyzer that changed my life forever as I put my faith in Jesus Christ. Isaiah 25, 6 through 9, is a passage of hope in the face of shame, in the face of despair. Isaiah 25, 6 through 9, let's read it together. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is vast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. The promise of Jesus, the promise of the Messiah that is being brought forth from Isaiah Chapters and chapters of failure and shame and pain and promised judgment is turning into the promise of a Savior, a Redeemer, somebody who takes something that's absolutely broken and makes it of value, restores it, redeems it. Jesus is that Redeemer. In verse 6, we see that Jesus offers abundance, and you're going to see Two things at play through this passage. One is that this is meant for all people, but all people don't get it. It is meant for all people. It is a promise. It's an invitation. But there are some who don't secure this redemption. God's heart is for all people to be redeemed. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast. Jesus offers abundance. If you would read prior to this in the chapters and even the five verses leading up to verse 6, you would see that there is a judgment coming for Jerusalem and for the other nations. 
And that judgment is because of this willful sinfulness that's continued over and over and over again. And in the wake of that judgment, God shows what his heart is. It's not to leave them with no hope. It's not to leave them destitute. It's not to leave them broken down. On this mountain, which mountain? Well, the mountain where Jerusalem is, the mountain where our Savior died. 700 years before Christ comes, there is a redemption talked about that happens on the mountain that the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples. Everyone. This is not a new concept for the Old Testament, but it's maybe a new concept that we need to keep rediscovering that God is interested in saving all people. For the Jewish people, they felt like the Assyrians and the Babylonians who were judging them, the Israelites who were the northern kingdoms, and Judah's looking at them thinking, well, God doesn't like them as much. God doesn't like them as much. God doesn't like them as much. They should be judged. They're evil. They're evil. They're evil. And what we're finding out in Isaiah is we're all evil, and God is redeeming all. He's not just redeeming the Israelites. He is offering it to all the nations for all people. This might have been an untasteful perspective from an Israelite perspective. The sense that those who had beaten them down, the Assyrians and the Babylonians, the bullies, God's going to get them, right? He's going to get the bullies. God's actually going to invite the bullies too. He's going to invite them to this redemption. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a rich feast of food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, and aged wine well-refined. For us, this fatty food, which is what's being described, the best of what people have to offer, it's not the same society as ours where we are concerned with cholesterol. They weren't getting enough fat. They were getting one meal a day. They weren't getting enough sustenance and enough protein. And he's saying, there's coming a day when you will not hunger and you will not thirst. If you're like me, I haven't spent a day really hungering and thirsting. There are moments when I get hungry, but I quickly feed myself. These are a people that know what hunger is, and this is used as a picture of a different kind of hunger. He's not just talking about food here. He's talking about redemption. He's talking to a 12-year or 13-year-old kid that can't figure out how to make the right move. That can't do the right thing. And God is saying, I am going to provide for you that you will flourish. What you're thirsting for, I have the solution to. And he's going to talk about what that solution is. But these are a people that are beaten down and this is the equivalent of providing a table for them in the midst of their enemies. Psalm 23. This is the good shepherd saying, I have a feast for you. This is my heart. My heart is not just to bless you a little bit. It's not like, okay, you failed, you failed. I'm going to let you in, but you're going to have a bunch of demerits and You're going to have a bunch of marks on your... I mean, we're going to barely let you in. You're an also-ran. You're not really one of my children. He is going to adopt you. He's going to fill you with the Spirit. He's going to cast his love on you and cause you to flourish. There are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. 
We are those who are loved. We are those who are chosen by the living God to be his children, to redeem our lives. Jesus offers abundance. It's what he wants to give. If you knew the Father's heart, as we look at these passages through Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, in them we see the Father's heart. The Father's heart is to not leave us destitute, to not leave us struggling, to not leave us in a chair waiting for judgment like I was outside of the vice principal's office. This banquet is an inaugural banquet. The picture is one of a new king who is now giving out gifts. He comes into his throne. He comes into his reign. And in the Old Testament, they might have experienced this thinking, it's just going to be like David and he's now going to be powerful and he's going to sit on a throne. No, he's going to a cross to provide the gifts for us that he intends to give. Our king is like no other king. He came to serve. He came to die. He came to suffer. And at this inaugural banquet that he supplies for us where we receive the Spirit and we receive love and we receive peace and we receive joy and forgiveness and the removal of shame and pain and stain of sin. This is an announcement that God intends to redeem through this promised king. What are the things that he intends to redeem? What is this feast that we're talking about? Well, we know it's for all people. We know it is referring to our hunger. What is it that we hunger for? And we know that it's dealing with suffering. There is a hunger and a suffering that God is dealing with with this Redeemer. And there's a basic hunger that we all have to belong, to be loved, to flourish, to have value, to have purpose, and to have a future. We long for it from a very young age. I was longing for it at 12 and 13. I wanted to belong. What made me grab that header? Because I wanted to fit in. I wasn't interested in kicking out ceiling tiles. I was interested in belonging. And this Redeemer is fixing the problem and offering us a feast that our hearts have been longing for. Jesus offers abundance. Notice also that we're saying offer because although this is available to all people, not all people receive it. Jesus offers life in verses 7 and 8. And you'll remember these words as we, from the New Testament, they're referred to as it talks about Jesus and his death and his resurrection. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people, the veil that is spread over all nations. This is a shroud. This is the picture of 
when Moses came down from the mountain that he put a covering over his face so that people couldn't see that the glory of God was diminishing in his face. There is a covering that we all have. A covering where we don't show people who we really are, what we're really struggling with. We don't show them our doubts and our fears. We don't show them our shame. When you go for a job and you put on your resume, do you put your past sins on there? When you want to make friends, do you tell them about your shame? No, we hide those things. If you want to get the job, you have to present that you're doing great. What if we told people how we were really doing? What if we told them about our fears and our failures? There is a covering that he is going to swallow. He is going to swallow up on this mountain, the mountain where Jerusalem is, that covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. What is that covering? And what is it covering? It's covering sin. There is a sinfulness in us that, to be honest with you, we don't even completely know. We don't know our intentions. We don't know our hearts. We just know that all of us struggle with sin, and this is the problem that Jesus came to solve. And it's pictured as a veil over us. The sin is causing us to not be able to see. Have you ever returned to a sin on purpose? It's a silly question because we all have. Have you ever known that it's bad for you and returned to a sin on purpose? Silly question. We all have. But why? Why do we go back again and again to failure? Why do I continue to choose to do the wrong thing even though I don't want to sit in that chair and wait for my mom? Because there is a covering where sin whispers in our ear, this time it'll work. This time it'll be okay. This isn't that bad. And we learn to tell ourselves the same thing. This veil, this shroud that covers our faces speaks of a sin. It speaks of a blindness. In 2 Corinthians 3, 14 and 15, it says, but their minds were hardened for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Jesus offers to remove a veil where we can't see and understand who God is and what he wants for us. We can't even understand what he's asking when he asks for faith. And yet, Jesus came to remove that spiritual blindness from us. And as we move into verse 8, you're going to see that the extent of this covering is death itself. It's the promise of death. I'm 58 years old. It seems like it was just a year or two ago that I was 20. What's on the horizon for me? If Jesus doesn't return, death is on the horizon for me. Death is the curse that came with sin and has been tormenting people 
right up until 700 BC when Isaiah writes these words and testifies that this Redeemer who is to come is going to solve the problem of death. He's going to solve the problem of sin. He's going to solve the problem of us not knowing God. And he's going to solve the problem of death. And this solution is going to be cataclysmic. Before all people can enjoy this feast, the universal curse must be resolved. Read verse 8 with me again. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will not take away from all the earth. The three things he's going to do. He's going to swallow up death forever. It's going to be gone. He's going to wipe away every tear. It's personal with him. It's the picture of what my mom did every time we were hurt. Even in my own home, my kids didn't run to me. They were hurt. They ran to mom. Crawled up in her lap. And mom made it better. The picture is of God having us crawl up into his lap and making everything better. It's incredibly intimate and personal. This God, who is speaking of judgment of sin throughout these chapters in Isaiah, even in the following verse that we're not going to look at, we're just going to glance at it, you see him talk about judgment again. This God's heart is to wrap us up in his arms and personally wipe away the tears. And the third thing, the reproach of his people. Read with me 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 57. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the promise 700 years before Christ came of what Christ would come to do. On that cross, on that mountain, this king would come to suffer and die and be raised again and solve the problems that we're dealing with. The significant, serious problems that are looming for all of us. And this is available to all. The reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. He's going to wipe away every tear. Look at Revelation 21.4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This promise 700 years before Christ is that this king was going to do something beyond your imagination. He was going to offer something beyond. This is going to take faith. You're going to have to trust him that that's what he came for. He came to save a 12-year-old numbskull. 
He's not worth it. I know. Believe me, I knew that at 12. But that's who he is. He came to redeem. Who here did he not come to redeem? Who here did he not come to restore? Whose story did he not come to save? And you might put up a hand and say, well, I'm not worth it. I failed too much. I've had friends tell me that. You don't know God. It's not looking at ourselves that we think that, well, maybe there's something equal here that I'm worth the Savior dying for me. That's not what this is a story about. This is a story about saving, redeeming, restoring. This is talking about people that are ruined. If you're ruined, you've come to the right place. Because Jesus offers abundance and Jesus offers life. What were the feelings I was feeling in that chair? I could hear my parents and teachers scolding, ringing in my ears. I'm sitting all alone, but the words are weighing heavy on me. Criticism. I mean, I could self-criticize. I'm looking for an out. Let me crawl out the window before my mom gets here. Blame. I don't think anybody was blaming me more than I was blaming myself. Reproof. Accusation. Shame. That moment in the principal's office, what I want you to, or the outside of my vice principal's office to be accurate, I want you to get a picture of all humanity waiting for Christ. With our legs swinging, not able to fix the problem. I got a bill sent home for the things I broke. I don't have a job. I need grace. I need forgiveness. Jesus offers abundance. Jesus offers life. Jesus offers joy. Look at verse 9. We'll be set on that day. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. It's an unlikely book to put, let us be glad and rejoice in. Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. This is the season of their great failure when Jerusalem is going to be sacked, the temple is going to be taken, their children are going to be carried away to Babylon, their priests will be out of a job, the temple will be no more. It's kind of weird that you would say in this moment, let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. It would be like somebody sitting next to me for a minute Hey, great news. While I'm sitting there with my legs swinging. There's a great end to this story. And it's for you. Can you see it so you can rejoice? It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. Behold, this is our God. That's how this chapter begins, if you're looking at your Bible. In chapter 25, verse 1, it starts with, You, O Lord, are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name. This is in the context of praise. And in verse 9, we're now returning to a song. 
In the first five verses, it was a song, a praise. And now he returns to song again, as if at this coronation, at this inaugural feast, they're celebrating, they're singing. Behold, this is our God. We're studying 1 Samuel in our men's Bible study, and Nick Petronella is leading us. And what we talked about last Tuesday was how Saul would refer, listen to the pronouns, refer to it as your God. Samuel, talk to your God. And David said, he is my God. And this is the great divide. If by faith have you secured a relationship with Jesus Christ and a relationship with God that produces this redemption. God is offering adoption. But there are some who are in the orphanage saying, no, 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 thank you. I don't want to be adopted by you. I don't want to be part of your family. I don't trust you. And trust is at the core here. That's what waiting for the Lord means from an Old Testament perspective. It's trust. Waiting for the Lord believes that God is going to produce something good. It's accepting the invitation. Faith, believing in God, can seem like such a little thing. Like a hard to even pinpoint, what does it mean that I trust God? That I've placed my trust in Jesus Christ and have secured my salvation? What does that mean? It means that you now live your life God-focused, trusting Him, moving towards Him, believing that He's the provider and the redeemer for you. Waiting on the Lord means I've got no place else to turn. These problems are bigger than me. I can't solve them on my own. I can't fix the shame and the pain and the suffering problem. I can't fix the death problem. I can't fix old age. These are problems that are too big for me. And it's a curse that we all live with. Waiting for the Lord looks like not having your answer yet, but trusting God. My hope is not extending my life one more breath. My hope is that I'd be waiting for the Lord with every breath. Faith, is, faith that waits, it places its trust that our current and ongoing difficulties are in God's hands. The things I can't fix, the things that I'm struggling with, Faith looks like me waiting in the waiting room for my mom and having a moment where I realize, well, God is for me. Who can be against me? I know I've made a mess, but I have an advocate who has more authority than my vice principal and even my mother, and he's fighting for me. And the remarkable thing is when I discovered that at 14, it radically changed my life, and now, like, you can look at the difference in my yearbooks from freshman year, sophomore year, junior year, and senior year. Freshman year, my yearbooks look like a, I had no friends, and what friends I had were good. But nobody was really on my side. By senior year, I couldn't believe people's respect and love and, and real connection with people because I had a real connection with God, and he was beginning to redeem. Three years. Can God redeem our lives? 
and change us so radically? This promise is not only for when we take our last breath. This is a promise for today. We wait for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. If we look at just these four verses, you see that there is God's heart to offer this to all people, all nations. If you were to go back earlier in the chapter, you would see that there are two groups described, the bullies and the bullied. You see the nations that are abusive and you see the nation that is being beat up. And now we're in these four verses and God is offering salvation to all of them without regard. He's offering it to the Ninevites. He's offering it to the Assyrians. He's offering it to the Babylonians. He's offering it to Israel. He's offering it to the northern tribes and the southern tribes. He's offering it to you and me. His heart is to offer redemption to everyone. But in verse 10, he returns to judgment. In verse 10, he goes back to the hand of the Lord being against Moab and describes what judgment, the harsh judgment that comes. And Moab here is not just talking about the Moabites, but it's used as an example of all peoples and nations that don't put their trust in God. So there's this offer to everyone, but there's this picture that not everyone receives it. Not everyone understands what faith looks like and what faith is. Not everyone has placed their trust in Jesus Christ, this one who came to seek and save me and you and to radically change our stories. How sad. How sad that an invitation was universal and so few accepted it. How sad that people go through their lives, live and die, and stay under the wrath of God. People don't like to talk about that today. They want to hear about a God that's nice. Well, I'll tell you, there is no nicer God than the one that died for you. And he died for you because the problems were significant. There was a bill that is sent home in each of us, in regards to each of us, that we cannot pay. And Jesus is willing to pay it. Go home. How are we to think about broken and shameful things? I had a conversation with a friend of mine. It turns out that that vice principal who I had bad dreams about for years after I was out of junior high, was a Christian. And I called a friend of mine who ended up attending a church with him. And it was at a time when I was thinking about becoming a pastor. And I told my friend about my thoughts about maybe becoming a pastor. And I don't know that my old vice principal is in the room with him. And my old vice principal starts laughing uproariously. What kind of church would have Todd Berge as their pastor? Amen. <laughs> Amen. I'm with you. 
a redeemed Todd Bergen. A child of the king. One who takes broken and shameful things and makes them beautiful. And uses them for his glory. That's the gospel. Those who read Isaiah, the people who read Isaiah would have to wait 700 years for this answer. What do you mean? Death, where is thy sting? It kept stinging. And now, in Christ, after he's come, we're waiting 2,000 years and people continue to live and die waiting for the return. What does faith look like? I will wait upon the Lord. He's my only hope. In him I put my trust. How about you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the older I get, the more I am excited about the promise that you have for us. That this isn't the end of the story. This is hardly the first verse or the first sentence in the story. You have provided a redemption that is eternal through Jesus Christ. And you wrote that into our messy story so that we could crawl up on your lap and every tear be wiped away. I can't believe you love us like you do. I can't believe that Jesus would die for us. And I really can't believe that people have chosen not to trust you. I pray that no one would leave here today without trusting you. In Jesus' name, amen.